Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I, uh, I thought about why we do this. And, and, and as I was preparing for this message, I, I realized that probably we don't take enough time in this community um, to communicate the why behind what we're doing right now. When we come together as the body of Christ, we come around the scripture and we preach the scripture. Everybody say preach. So Paul told Timothy, he said, preach the word. And I want to share this passage just as a way of introduction, and then we'll get to our text for today. But 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, why do we preach? Why do we do this as a community? The apostle Paul said, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead in view of his appearing in his kingdom. I give you, watch this, I give you this charge. He said, preach the word, preach the word, be prepared or be instant, be Prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Intentionality to preaching. Careful careful instruction and great patience. It It takes both of those to preach. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and they will turn aside to myths. But you, man of God, you, younger aid Timothy, keep your head in all situations. Don't lose your head here. Endure afflictions, endure hardships, do the work of an evangelist and discharge all of the duties of your ministry. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. The Apostle Paul was in Marmitime Prison, which is in downtown Rome. And he is pushing his face up against the bars of his prison cell and craning his neck to see out there in the courtyard a chopping block. It's a bloodstained chopping block because they cut people's heads off at that chopping block there in the Marmitime Prison. And in the lamplight, he realizes his life is almost finished. This might be perhaps his last night. And under flickering light, he rolls out his last piece of parchment paper. And a young man comes to his mind. A young man named Timothy. A young man he laid his hands on. A young man he had discipled. A young man he had led in the way of the Lord. And he gets to this end moment of his life. And he's going to write one last letter. And what is he going to say? He's going to say, get out, Timothy, while the getting is good. Get out, Man, this is going to end bad for you like it's going to end bad for me tomorrow. My head is going to be taken off. Is that what he writes? Does he tell him, hey, don't endure hardship. Just get out. Bug out. Go get a real job. Go back to your mother Lois or your your grandmother Eunice. Go back and, and just get a real job. Is that what he writes? No, that's not what he writes. He says, hey, tomorrow do not be ashamed of my headless body. This is how it's supposed to go down. Don't be ashamed of me tomorrow when I've been martyred for my faith. He looks at him and he says, bold and triumphantly, notice, this is a life of pain. This is a life of sacrifice, but I want you to preach the word. Everybody say, preach the word. I just felt like saying that today. We believe in preaching at Dwelling Place Church. In a day and age where there's a lot of talks... In a lot of discussions, we believe in the preaching of God's word. And I say that with the utmost respect. I really do. 
but we believe in preaching. I don't believe you can be effective and anointed in something you really don't believe in. I don't believe you can. And I believe here in our church in the power of preaching, we believe in the efficacy of it. We believe that God uses it. I believe in God's unusual willingness to anoint a human. He does. In fact, he categorizes it and describes it and diagnoses it in the scripture as the foolishness of preaching. It is foolishness. Church, think about what preaching really is. The word of God inside the brain and the spirit of a human being through the cognitive activity of that brain forms into thoughts and moves through the neurosystem of that body. When it begins to move through the neurosystem of that body, those thoughts become energized in the conceptual reality of communicative words. Those communicative words find their place in the brain and the diaphragm pushes upward air. And when the diaphragm pushes upward air, the air goes over vocal cords, over the tongue and the lips and the teeth of an individual. When it leaves those lips, sound waves are sent out at random across an open room. And when those sound waves go out, flesh appendages on the sides of people's heads Scoop up the sound waves, unless you think that these are actually for any other reason. This is their functional purpose. They're not just there to be pierced. They are there to funnel sound waves into the hole on the side of your head. When it gets into the hole inside of your head, they cause the smallest bones in the human body to begin to vibrate. Sending electrical signals in the reverse order back through the neurosystem of that person's body. Where faith arises, the Spirit of God witnesses to the blood of Jesus. And a person is literally transformed from darkness into light. That is the foolishness of preaching. God chose his kingdom to operate through that type of foolishness. And I would tell you, as long as you're a part of Dwelling Place Church, we will never ever back down of preaching God's word. We're going to preach God's word. I, I was so disturbed when I saw that young eight-year-old transgender self-identifying young man make that great plea to the Democratic politician this weekend. I mean, his parents should be in jail. I mean, we are, we are in the saddest of sad times in our nation. And if we as the church cannot preach God's word, you say, Craig, you're on a soapbox. I feel like I am on a soapbox this morning, to be honest with you, because we have less and less communicators of the gospel that would just declare God's authoritative word. His authoritative word, that his word is there to change our lives, to transform our lives. Anybody been saved because of what's written in this book? Come on, anybody ever been filled with the Holy Ghost because of what's written in this book? Anybody ever been healed because of what's written in this book? Thank God for his word. Thank God for his word. So we're in this series called Go Be Work. And here's the big idea. Look at the top of your card. The big idea is that most Christians, they think of worship as something they do inside the church. They think of something they do inside the gathering. And, and getting really committed to Jesus means that you just get busy at church. In other words, you volunteer at the church nursery. Or you attend a connect group. Or you go on a mission trip. Or you serve at the soup kitchen. You know, when I was younger in the Baptist church, they had a, a phrase called three to thrive. And three to thrive meant if you were a real believer, you went to church to, just to hear the word three times a week. 
You went Sunday morning, you went Sunday night, you went Wednesday night. If you didn't, I think the reason the Baptist church started that is they wanted people to be too busy to sin, okay? So, I mean, it's like you never left the church. So it's three to thrive. And if you didn't get three to thrive, much less are you going to be, you know, pleasing to the Lord, right? And so, so you know, it was this kind of idea that the busier I get inside the church, that's how God gets glorified in my life. And um, our jobs, your jobs, which are secular jobs. See, I don't have a secular job. I'm a professional Christian, okay? I get paid to be good. You're all good for nothing, okay? <laughs> but, but this kind of thinking that all oh, those professional Christians, that, that, that people who are in secular jobs often think that those jobs are necessities, that must be endured to put bread on the table. And if God has any interest in my job at all, it's just that I don't cheat and we tithe off of our salary. That's that's how God views my job. And when we think about people who are trying to bring God to the workplace, all kinds of disturbing images come to mind, right? I've showed you before. You think of, oh, being a Christian means I'm going to open up a coffee shop called Hebrews, right? (laughs) Or you open up a coffee shop called... um, Holy grounds, okay? Uh, i never forget when we on a mission trip a couple years ago and we were driving down the road and somebody had a big billboard on 75. It was a little Jesus juke. It said the Adam and Eve store. And uh, somebody said, oh, look, they've opened up a biblical store. I'm like, no, those are different types of Christians, okay? The Adam and Eve store, okay, some of that, y'all hadn't seen that store. That's not a good store, okay? So nonetheless, that's what people think sometimes. That that's what God wants out of my job. Or maybe it's you defiantly saying Merry Christmas rather than Happy, happy Holidays in the checkout line. Because not anybody's going to take your Merry Christmas, right? And you think that's what it means to be a Christian. Or sneaking a have a blessed day in there real quick before you walk away. You know, or Jesus bless you. You know, I don't know what you think is being a Christian. Or maybe, even worse, forcing those awkward moments into sales calls. So you get on the phone and you say, now that I've showed, uh, sold you life insurance, how about I talk to you about insurance for life after death? You want to talk about that for a few moments? You know? And we think that that is the way to be a Christian. Or, or even worse, hey, I've got your name on my mailing list, but the more important question is, is your name in the Lamb's Book of Life? And, and somehow, some way, we think out of the corniness that that's what it means to be a Christian in the workplace. Or maybe giving away Jesus-themed gifts at the Christmas party. And that somehow somebody will see. You say, Craig, well, that's, what, what if that's not me? What if that's not me? Is that the scope of what it means to serve God in your work? Is that the scope of what it means to really serve God in your workplace? Well, believe it or not, the Bible has a lot to say about our work. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, at the first mention of work in the Bible, the Hebrew word God uses for work is abad. Abad shares the same root word as worship. When God is ready to communicate to humankind what worship essence looks like, he uses the word work. He uses the word development. He uses the word labor. Adam worshipped God in the garden not just by reading the Bible and praying and staying away from a few bad apples. He wasn't there, you know, you know, having angels massage his feet and just kind of hanging out in the garden. No, he worshipped God, watch this, by doing the work that God put him in the garden to do. And, and listen, I've told you this before, but let's just, it, go, it bears repeating. 
Surely it cannot be incidental or coincidental that the majority of the parables Jesus told had a workplace context. Every, in fact, parable he tells has the context of a workplace. And of the 40 miracles recorded in the book of Acts, 39 of those happen outside the church. 39 of the 40 New Testament miracles do not happen in the gathered setting. What that tells me is it is very apparent that the God of the Bible is just as concerned with displaying his power outside the walls of the church as he is within it. That he wants to display his power outside the walls of our worship. Abraham Kuyper, a great theologian I love to read, he said, Not one square inch of the entire cosmos does Jesus not emphatically declare, Mine! And that certainly applies to your work. Southeast Restoration, Jesus says, Mine! Dairy Queen, Jesus says, Mine! Clark Creek Elementary, Jesus says, Mine! Ed Vols Honda, Jesus says, Mine! There's not a square inch That is not his. So what I want to do today is I want to suggest to you five ways, five ways you worship God while you work. Five ways you worship God while you labor. Now it's a little bit unusual today because I don't have a central text. But if I was to land and you want to put your finger in your Bible, I'm going to really, really spend time in two passages. Genesis chapter 2, Colossians 3. Genesis 2, Colossians 3. And then I'm going to intersperse a lot of other scriptures along the way. Number one, what does worshipful work do? Worshipful work, number one, fulfills God's purposes in creation. Work that is worshipful fulfills God's purposes in creation. In Genesis 2.15, God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden with the assignment, the Bible said, to work the ground and to keep it. Now, y'all, listen, listen. This is so misconstrued and confused in today's world. This was before the curse. So work is not a punishment inflicted on Adam for his sin. It was God's original design. Okay, it was God's original design. A lot of people, they don't start the gospel until Genesis 3. But that's not where the gospel starts. The gospel starts at Genesis 1. And if you think the gospel starts at Genesis 3, you'll think the gospel's only purpose is to fix what is wrong. But that's not the gospel's purpose. The gospel's purpose is complete restoration. It matters. It matters how we think about this. God looks at him pre-fall and he says, I want you to work in the garden. The word for work literally means to prepare or to develop. Now watch this. God therefore made Adam a developer. He was a gardener. He was not a park ranger. He was not a park ranger. He was not called to steward what God had already created. He was called to create with the raw materials God provided. There's a big difference here. He was not called to be a steward in the sense of being passive with what God had placed. He was called to be a gardener. He was called to be a developer. And God put Adam there to take the raw materials of the earth and develop those raw materials, watch this, for the glory of God and for the benefit of other people. He made man in his own image. And 12 times in that one chapter, the Bible says God created. If God is revealing God's self in any way in our first chapter, we know that God is a creator. He's a creator. He's not just a park ranger. He is a creator. He is a divine 
uh, gardener. He is somebody who is designing something. So he got Adam to take the dirt and the seeds. And God, being the creator, he made Adam the co-creator. He was to be the co-creator. He was to take on the nature of his God. You remember the word that God used for his creation over and over and over? After every day, he created it, and he stepped back, and he saw it was... Come on, he saw it was... Now listen, good is good, but good is not perfect. Hear me, hear me. Good is good, but good is not perfect. I've, I've told you this before. Perfect means it cannot be improved upon. Good means it can be improved upon. God created the world in a raw good state so that we his children could take and cultivate what is good for his glory and other people's benefit here's a way to understand it when you see my wife she's perfect she's perfect her outfit's perfect her makeup's perfect her face is perfect her hair is perfect she cannot be improved upon okay she is perfect She's absolutely perfect. Now listen, when she wakes up first thing in the morning and gets out of bed, she's good. Is it okay to say that? She's good. But what happens is she takes the raw materials, and once those raw materials develop them into a perfect present for all of us to see. Okay, This is a perfect person. This is what God does in the garden. He creates good so that mankind could take what is good, the materials of the earth, and bless him and bless other people. So we're not park rangers. Look at your neighbor and say, you're not a park ranger. You're a gardener. Come on, tell them, you're a gardener. We take the raw materials of the earth and we develop them for God's glory and the benefit of humans. I've heard it said this way. It's the difference between being a stockbroker and a security guard. If I give a security guard $10,000 and I come back 20 years later, I should expect to get... $10,000 back. Not a penny more, not a penny less. $10,000. If I give $10,000 to a stockbroker, I expect to come back in 20 years and have a whole lot more money than $10,000. God does not expect you to be a park ranger or a security guard. That is to say what he gave you, he does not want to see you on his day of coming with what he gave you. He wants what he gave you to be created and to be surrendered to his glory so that it benefits him and the people around us. This is why he makes it clear in the parable of the talents. You can't take the one talent and bury it. You'll be an evil, adulterous generation, Jesus would call you. We are to develop. We are not to be security guards. We are to cultivate. We are to design. We are after our God's image in creation. What that means is if you're a contractor, contractors take the raw materials of sand and cement and they use them to make buildings. Artists take the raw materials of color and music and they arrange them into art. Lawyers, what do they do? They take the principles of justice and they they codify them into laws that benefit society. This is the key. Watch this, church. As we do this in our jobs, God is at himself working through us. Watch this, watch this. Psalm 147, 13, watch this text. Watch this, this is beautiful. The Bible says, For God strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest things of wheat. Leave that up there for a few moments. How does God do those things? How does he strengthen the bars of the city? By city planners, by architects, by people who are politicians who pass good laws. 
How in the world does God bless our children within our midst? Through the work of teachers, through the work of principals, through the work of pediatricians. How does he make peace in our borders? By means of good lawyers, by means of policemen, by means of those who work in some type of security. How does he fill us with the finest of wheat? By farmers, by factory workers, and by restaurant owners. In other words, can I just tell us the truth this morning about our profession? Our professions are like the mask that God wears in caring for the world. Your job is a mask for God. So that others don't really know and see, go to that next slide, they don't really know and see often that the divine origin of that work. But God strengthens the city. He feels the children. He teaches the children. He fills our bellies with wheat through professions. Think about this. When we pray the Lord's Prayer and we ask Him to give us this day our daily bread, He gives us our daily bread, doesn't He? But how does he give us our daily bread? He did it by the farmer who planted and harvested the grain. He did it by the baker who made the flour into bread and the person who prepared our meal. And all three of them are are, are in play when God answers our prayer for daily bread. There's no ability. God chose his kingdom to be advanced this way. It's through co-creators. It's through co-heirs. It's for partnership in the world. That's why your work is so worshipful. It's how God accomplishes his task. It's how God accomplishes his work. You see, some of you in your work, you feel almost this divine satisfaction when you do it. You may not even be a believer in here, but you, you, you get this sense of satisfaction like, whoo, man, this is, I'm doing what I was born to do. That word vocation we use a lot in English. Vocation comes from the Latin word voca. Voca means call, to call. Voca, chords. To call chords. That's what they are. The vocal chords. It's to call. So what is it saying? It's how God designed you and called you to live. He called you to serve in the world. And when you live, I don't care if you're a believer or not, folks. People get in their vocation apart from Jesus actually saving their life first. Do you know this? You realize this, right? And some people, that can actually prevent them from experiencing Christ because they get into a place where they're feeling some type of satisfaction, not knowing it's a divine satisfaction because they're actually fulfilling the purpose for which they were created. So it's a, a vocal, it's a vocation. In fact, um, you know, we're a spirit-filled church. There's two Old Testament characters that were filled with the Spirit. Filled. The Bible says they were filled with the Spirit. And those two characters, Exodus 31, are uh, Bezaliel and Oholiab. And Moses says they were filled with the Spirit. Let's read it. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've called the name Bezaliel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, filled him with the Spirit of God, ability, intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship, divine, devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze. Look at verse 5. And cutting stones, what, for setting, carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I've appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. And I've given to all able men ability. They may make all that I have commanded you. Pause. The Bible says of the only two people in the Old Testament of whom the Spirit lives in, he resides in notice this they were filled with the spirit and how did he express that they were filled with the spirit and spoke in tongues nope they were filled with the spirit and preached great sermons nope they were filled with the spirit and worked for the church nope they were filled with the spirit and they preached every Sunday nope they were filled with the spirit and they wrote great songs for worship leaders no they were filled with the spirit and what did they do they were expert craftsmen they were expert craftsmen they were filled with the spirit and they became People who are experts at what they did with their hands. Their expression of being filled with the Spirit was through excellent work. 
It reminds me of uh, that old movie in the scene of, of, of Chariots of Fire. Remember that old 1970s film where the Christian, Scottish Christian uh, Olympic star named Eric Liddell in his preparation for the 1924 Olympics, his family goes to, uh, to China on missions. They become missionaries. He knows he's called to be a missionary. And so his family goes over there and he finds out that he likes to run and, and wants to be trained for the Olympics. And his sister comes to him. Remember that great scene? And his sister says, what are you doing, brother? Your whole family's over there doing the work of the Lord. And you're over here training for the Olympics. You know what Eric Liddell says to her? He says, no, I believe God made me for a purpose, but I also believe that God made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. When I run, I feel the pleasure of God. What's he saying? Many business people feel that. They're doing something they love and they like, and they feel like, man, this is what I was made for. This is how I was created. When I do it, I feel God's pleasure. It's like I feel even the Spirit of God at work in me in this. This is, this is my voca. This is my voca. This is what I've been called to do. Now, one word of clarification before you jump. One of the curses of the fall was that work became toilsome. Now, listen to me. God cursed the ground and the thorns and thistles would frustrate our efforts so that efforts that were pre-Adamic or pre-sin, pre-fall, when Adam was working in the garden, was different than post-sin. And work at that point became a compulsory act of survival for a lot of people. So the sin took the world by its grip. And for many of you, maybe your work's only partially fulfilling. But it's also toilsome. And it's also very draining. Listen to me. For others of you, maybe you hate your job entirely and you only do it to survive. Well, let me just tell you. I, know how to, I don't know how else to say it other than say those, are the, the, those effects are the sad part of the result of the curse. And you may have to work a while in that kind of condition. One guy I was reading this week. This is what he said. I loved it. He said, our generation, like the ones that just graduated college, man, he, he pegs them. He said, our generation insists that work be fulfilling and fruitful that it fully fit our talents and our dreams, and that we be paid exorbitantly for it. Like college student, you know, like, oh, I graduated with an art history major, and I know the two different types of black in the Mona Lisa. And I can distinguish them. So you know what? I'd expect to be paid $300,000 as a 19-year-old or a 23-year-old for my college degree in art history, right? Well, that's probably not going to happen for you. And here's what he said. He said, this sounds great, but this is not the world we live in. It's the world Adam and Eve used to live in. Man, he pegged it. So there's going to be toilsome, burdensome realities to every work, to every vocation. There is going to be a challenge. There's going to be thorns and thistles that try to stop progress. What do you do, Craig, if you're in that type of job? You still do it faithfully as an act of service to God, and it's still helping someone, and, it, and there can be certain pleasure in that. And watch this. You can wait for heaven to be fully fulfilled. Maybe you're fully fulfilled before in your job. And consider, this is key, consider, watch this, there might be a distinction between your job and the pursuit of the calling God has placed on you. Watch this. The Apostle Paul, his calling was to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but he also made tents. Making tents was a part of Paul's calling, but it wasn't the heart of his calling. And for some of you, you want to get into the heart of your calling and be paid for the heart of the calling, but that's not a right, that's a privilege. That's a privilege. To get into the heart of your calling and immediately be paid is a privilege, not a right. 
And that is actually unlike what most people have. That, that there is a need for Paul to do something. He felt called to make tents. Look, I feel called to teach. You know the way I did that this semester? I'm teaching. I'm teaching sixth grade math. I teach fourth grade Bible. I teach Chinese kids. I did this morning and last night. You know, if there's a way, unfortunately there's not, I would, I would work on people's brains this week as a neurosurgeon if I could too. But unfortunately, I've got to go to school for eight more years, okay, which would take away from my primary calling, which is being a pastor. But I would do it if I could. That there are ways that we do other things that are not the heart of our calling that maybe provide the resources for us to be free to do our calling. And it's really important for us to distinguish that. Super important for us to understand that. That I, God... If you're one of those rare people that finds a career that fits your calling from the beginning, that's a blessing, y'all, not a right. Because most people don't. Most people don't. Some people do other things to free them to do the main thing. To free them to do what they really feel called to do. Number two, it got real quiet, by the way, on the end point, man. That was super, super quiet. Maybe, maybe we struck a chord. Number two, worshipful work pursues the highest standards of excellence. So we know worshipful work, first of all, fulfills God's creation, His purposes. Number two, it pursues the highest standards of excellence. You say, Craig, what do you mean? If our work is done unto God, regardless of the reward, regardless of the recognition, it should be done according to the highest standards of excellence as an offering to God. What does Paul say in Colossians 3? Let's read it, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that what from the Lord, watch this, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward not your employer not your boss you're going to receive from the Lord for you are serving the Lord Christ can I just tell you you have a higher boss than your employer you and we work for a greater reward than our salary we work for a greater reward than our recognition on our job site we work for the risen Lord we serve the risen Lord and we will receive an inheritance the Bible says in everything we do Paul says we do it unto God which means what we do it as a statement about the worthiness of our God the way you work for your boss tells your your boss whether you think God's this worthy or this worthy the, the, the faithfulness of you and your job tells every person around you whether you think God's this worthy or that worthy. Your attitude in your job and your workplace determines and tells and predicates upon everyone else in your workplace that you think God is this worthy or is this worthy. I've told you C.S. Lewis in his great book, he, he often notes how valleys undiscovered by human eyes here in the western world are still filled with beautiful flowers. He said they're filled with beautiful flowers and no one's ever laid eyes on them. And he said, for whom in the world did God create that beauty if no human eyes would ever see it? And Lewis's answer was God does some things only for his own pleasure. Even he sees things when no one else sees things. And when you're in your workplace, he sees things that please him that doesn't please anybody around you and doesn't please your boss and it doesn't please your employer and it won't please certainly your co-workers but let me tell you something God does things for his own pleasure and that's why he put that desire in you that vocal that that calling interestingly enough many of of the people to whom Paul said do it unto the Lord we're in the worst possible job situations he goes on I won't read it slaves obey your masters that's a pretty bad situation Someone say, well, man, my boss totally owns me. No, no, no. For them, like their boss owned him. Okay? Like literally owned them. 
indentured servants. And he says, do it. Hey, 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 I'm, I'm not giving you an out. I'm not giving you a card out. You do it as unto the Lord, not unto men. They were in the worst of circumstances, the least rewarding circumstance, and they were due to do their work as a statement of God's worthiness. Paul says this is one of the things that should set Christians apart. We do our work for the glory of God. Whether we eat or drink or mop floors or we're janitors or we write contracts or we sell houses or we teach Chinese kids, we do it all for the glory of God. That's what we do. We do it for God's glory. And everything they do, they say, you know what? The way I do this is a statement about your worthiness, so I do it for you, Jesus. The way I do it. If you're a college student, man, I cannot, you know, being a student ministry, this is kind of my frame of reference. A lot of college students, high school students, they think that the only way they serve God at college or their campus is to be involved in a campus ministry. And I'm like, yes, you need to be involved in a campus ministry. Please connect to a local college. But listen, how well you do your schoolwork is a statement about the glory of God. And if you think that God is, doesn't care whether or not you're doing your best in school, you are sadly mistaken. Now, we're not all straight-A students. Some of us may be straight B's or straight C's, but you do whatever you can do. And you do it for the glory of God as best as you can do it for the glory of God. So worshipful work fulfills God's purposes in creation. Number two, it always exhibits the highest standards of excellence. Number three, it reflects the highest standard of ethics. In other words, it reflects its excellent but now it has ethical parameters to it. Sir Arthur, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is, this is fascinating. He worked in the British government. And um, once he played a practical joke on 12 very respected and well-known men in Great Britain. And what he did is he sent them an anonymous telegram early in the morning from inside the government. And he sent it to all 12 men, and this is what it said. Flee at once. Everything we've been doing is discovered. He checked back six hours later, and all 12 of them have already made complete plans to leave the city and the government. You know why? Because lack of integrity is nothing new in the workplace. That's the norm. That's the norm. Doing things backward, crooked, that's the norm. That is what's normal in the business world. But work that worships God will conform to the highest standard of ethics because it seeks to demonstrate the justice and the integrity of God. Do business ethics really matter, Pastor Craig? Of course business, business ethics really matter. Why? Because our work's done into God and our effort and our ethical practices demonstrates or reflect on God. What does God say in Proverbs 11? Why watch this. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. I wish Solomon would not have used such a strong word, but he did. He said a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. You know, what, you know what this is, right? Leave that up just for a minute. When you're weighing something, you put a false weight that looks one way, but you put that false weight and it messes up the scale. You know what he says? A false balance means that we fudge on our mileage reports. You know what a false balance means? It means we pad our business's expenses. We skimp our time cards. That's a false balance. We call in sick when we're not sick. We commandeer office supplies for personal uses. We unreport income. This is false balances. I don't know how else to say it other than he said it's an abomination. Now listen, he doesn't use that word, but only two or three times in the whole Testament. And you don't want to know the other times he uses it. He said a false weight, it's an abomination. False, 
out of weight, it's an abomination. But a just weight is the Lord's delight. What does that mean? That means to worship God in your work means you have higher standards than even the world. It means what? You go beyond the world's standards. I can't tell you how many Christians I've heard. And some of you business owners, you know what I'm talking about. I cannot tell you how many Christians I've heard say that they don't like to do business with other Christians. And they're Christian themselves. They, these, are, these are people not in the world. These are like Christians talking about themselves. In fact, I just read an interview just this week about a Christian publication, watch this, with the CEO of one of the largest consulting groups for Microsoft Software. He's an industry veteran. He is wise. He is a solid believer. And this is what he said in his interview. He said, I got burned doing business with professing Christian companies. You know, the ones that put the fish on their business card. And the interviewer said, why? And he said that once the other business finds out that he's also a Christian, they take what he calls extensions of grace. And that may take the form of not paying on time, not delivering work when promised, or asking for fee or labor reductions without cause. It's referred to as ministry discount. When they find out I'm a believer, oh, then I cannot show up and not pay them on time. And he said, we don't do that. We don't operate that way in my business. If you're a waitress, you know what I'm talking about. Waitresses hate to wait tables on Sundays. Why? Because Christians are in the, the, the restaurant. And we, we find out that our waiters are Christian, and now I can skimp. Now I can give a ministry extension now I can give it an extension of grace because you're a believer and I'm a believer listen don't do that never go to a restaurant and leave less than 15 or 20 percent and if you do please don't put a dwelling place card down I will come and find you you understand we bless people because we have a higher standard of ethics and it reflects the God that we serve Psalm 15 this is a man this is a powerful text and the first one I'm almost embarrassed to read. This is the, from the message translation. It's, it's honestly, it's really, really bad. But I loved it so much I had to read it because I love verse 2. And this is what he says in the message. He said, God, who gets invited to dinner at your place? How do we get on your guest list? I don't like that. But I do like this. And God says this. Walk straight. Act right. Tell the truth. Don't hurt your friend. Don't blame your neighbor for things you did. Keep your word even when it costs you. Make an honest living and never take a bribe. You want to get invited to his party? Walk according to integrity. Walk according to a higher standard, an ethical standard. To follow Jesus means you think about your life in the way he thought about his. Number four, worshipful work makes blessing others its bottom line. It makes blessing others its bottom line. Whatever it is, whatever field I find myself in, that's what worshipful work does. I want to bless the people around me. I want to think of my job as an offering to serve others. I want to think of my job the way Jesus thought of his life. He leveraged the strength he had, not for himself, but for the blessing of other people. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? The Bible says, though he was rich, he became poor for my sake. Why did he become poor for my sake? That I might become rich in him. You know what that is? That's a business principle right there. Though he was rich, he became poor for my sake, so that in my sake, I would become rich. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying he leveraged his assets. He was the son of God. He leveraged his position of strength. Why? Not for himself, but for the benefit of others. Another way we could say this is that strength in God's kingdom is for service, not status. If you're strong, 
That's for you to serve more people. It's not for you to be higher held or more of an idol. If you're strong in your gifting and you're strong in your your vocation, it's for service to the people around you. You leverage what strength you have because you didn't get your strength on your own, folks. If God took his hand off your immune system, you'd probably be dying a week, okay? That your strength is, people say, well, I work for this money, this tithe. Okay, yeah. Imagine if God didn't give you any energy tomorrow morning, okay? Imagine if you didn't sleep tonight. You wouldn't be working for long. God gives everything. He's the giver of all good things. And when we think about this, think about worshipful work. What is it doing? It is coming to a place where I leverage my life and my job for the benefit of other people. That's what you do when you follow Jesus. That's what you do. You leverage. You leverage for the sake of the people around you to bless and serve others. Um, the parable I think of here for you business owners, business people, more so than any other parable, because a lot of the parables of Jesus are all written for like those who feel it called a missions and the ministry of God's word, and they go out and do it. But if I think of a parable that really just codifies or typifies a business owner, it's out of Luke chapter 14. And you remember what happens in Luke 14? Jesus is at a party. He, he, the party's thrown by a rich man, and there's a bunch of rich men around him. And Jesus is there, and he's not rich, but when you raise people from the dead and walk on water and you kind of get invited to the parties. So he made his way into the party as a non-rich man, okay? And he's around all these rich people and here's what happens. He looks at the disciples and he says to the disciples, hey, hey, disciples, listen, listen. When you have a party, don't do this. And they say, what? He said, yeah, yeah, when you throw a party, don't do this. Don't invite rich people who can pay you back. He said, don't do that. Invite the poor, invite the lame, Invite the paralyzed. Invite those who have no jobs. People who can't pay you back in this life. And he says, you will be rewarded in the resurrection of the just. You're going to be rewarded. And, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, crippled, lame, and blind, you'll be blessed. Although you can't repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What's he saying? In order for us to understand this passage, we've got to know the scandalous nature of, of, of business in that day. Because parties were how business was done. It's the only way business is done. You say, Craig, what do you mean? What Jesus is counseling is economic suicide. Why? Because if you're rich, you invite all of your rich friends over so that rich friends can talk to one another and they would get business deal. But if you invited those rich friends over, guess what they did? They invited you to their party with all of their rich friends, which would make your business prosper. And Jesus says, when it's time for you to operate economically, basically commit suicide. What's he telling you? Is he, is he giving you like a list of qualities of who to put on your birthday list? No, 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 no. That's not what he's doing. Okay? Or your birthday party. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not giving you rules of how to put together your birthday list. He's commanding you to think about your life through a certain filter. You ready? If your life were a party, who would you be throwing the party for? That's how we're supposed to think of our life. Have I leveraged my strength, my party, for the blessing of people who can't pay me back? Have I leveraged my life, my party, for the lame, the crippled, the diseased, the one who can't pay me back in this life? You say, Craig, what does that look like in the business world? Well, it may just be your attitude. Maybe you have an attitude, but man, the joy of service. Whoa, I get to serve people in this business. Maybe it's forgiving somebody at your work. Now listen, I know this is so hard to put like flesh to. So, so 
I, I want to give you an illustration, perhaps the best one I've heard of this. True story. There's a young lady who got a two-year internship. She was a young college graduate, graduated from a great school, great college, got a two-year internship, and landed a job on Madison Avenue in one of the world's most prestigious firms. Now, no, no, you know, this, this doesn't happen overnight, and this doesn't happen for a lot of people. She's got an amazing job. Shortly after she got there, she made a mistake that cost the company nearly $25,000. She was there for like three weeks. She's an intern that cost the company $25,000. Now, M- Madison Avenue is not a world defined by grace. Madison Avenue is a world defined by cutthroat. Okay? She's so overwhelmed, she's crying profusely. She's thinking, okay, my job is over. I'll be done by the end of the day. And her boss comes into her office and he says, I'm going to do something different. And he went before his board of directors and he convinced them to allow all of the blame that should go on her to fall on him. And he said, oh, I didn't train her right. I didn't get her ready for this situation. And the guy, the board of directors goes with it and he goes to the boss and he takes all of the blame for this intern losing $25,000. She walks into his office later that day and she's crying and she says, why in the world would you, in a business that's cutthroat, why in the world would you take blame for me like that? Why in the world would you do it? And he said, oh, since you asked, let me go ahead and tell you, I realize that Jesus has actually done that from my life, that he actually came into my life and he paid the penalty and he took on the guilt that I deserve. And I made my decision when Jesus did that for me that you know what, because of the great grace Jesus has shown me, I want to display a similar mercy to other people that are in my business. That's how you do it. That's how God gets glory in the context of work. That's how God's glory gets manifested. So for you who own businesses, it means you think about more than merely personal profit in your bottom line. You start to ask questions like, I know we can make a profit from this, but is it genuinely helpful to people? That's what you ask. See, in your medical profession, this is big because you can do a lot of things that make money, but does it actually help other people? And as a Christian medical professional, I don't just say, do we make more money? I say, does this actually help human, human beings? Does this bless human beings? Now, I'm not trying to say, listen, I'm not trying to say there's a dichotomy between those two, okay? People often think profit and, and business is bad. Do y'all come across this, by the way? In the new generation that's coming up, they all think this. They all think like, oh, being, being profitable is really, really bad in the business world. No, no, no. It's not bad. In fact, if you, I read an article this week that more than NGOs, uh, non-governmental uh, organizations that provide for those that are poor, that when good businesses go into communities, it actually causes the water level in the harbor to rise and everybody's boat comes up. So the best way to actually help the poverty around us is to actually create good businesses. That's true. That's statistically proven. So sometimes we look at it and we say, nah, that, that's, you shouldn't worry about profit. No, profit, I'm not trying to set up this bad dichotomy where it's like, oh, you're doing something good for somebody or you make profit. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that at the end of the day, you don't look at personal profits as the only thing that matters. You look at the blessing of everyone involved. Listen, certain kinds of development in our communities may be good for a few, but it's harmful for the majority. So as a Christian, I take that, and it probably means that I'm going to give a lot away of the personal profit I make. Why? Because 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, He who was rich became poor for me, that I might become rich in him. I might become rich in him. So before I go to the last one, let me point something out real quick, okay? Many people, they wonder how to be an effective witness in the workplace. 
Well, let me, if you just do those four things, that will completely set you off from the majority of people. Just those four things. And look what Peter said. Oh, I love this text. He said, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared, watch this, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Peter's context is like ours. He's in a hostile environment where you can't just go in and say, hey, lunch break today, I'm going to preach the word. Everybody meet me in the, in the restroom, okay? Meet me there. Not like restroom, but like the restroom, you know. I never really thought about that before. Break room, okay? That was, wasn't making sense in my mind like the rest. Not like the restroom. Don't meet you in the restroom to preach, okay? There'll be no preaching in the restroom. Okay? Go to the break room. Some of you call it break. I don't know, all right? Just go to that room that has tables and you eat at, Okay? Peter says we're to live in such a way that people had to ask about our motives. We honor Christ first in the business place. It means doing business according to these four things. And that will make other people say, hey, why do you do that? Why do you act that way? Why do you have joy that you possess that I don't? Why do you you respond to persecution in the workplace with grace? Ready? Ready? When is the last time someone in your business asked you about why you do things a certain way? Oh, that's a great question. Because your ethics are so diabolically different from the ethics of those around you, Peter expects you daily to have to give a defense. When you've honored Christ in your heart, it so affects the ones around you that he says, you've got to be ready. You've got to be ready to give a defense. This invisible kingdom that we have made manifest. See, it's visible love that opens invisible hearts. And when I visibly love people in my workplace, invisibly their hearts begin to open. They begin to ask questions. What is it you do this for? Here's the fifth and final one. Worshipful work seeks to advance Jesus' mission wherever it can. Wherever it can. The mission of Jesus, wherever it can. Jesus' last words should be our first priority. His last words are, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that commanded you, and lo, I'm with you to the very end of the age. Amen. His last words should be our first priority. What does that mean? Work done by disciples of Jesus should be done with a view towards the Great Commission. You say, well, how can I be an effective witness in the work at workplace? You leverage what you have for the Great Commission. You know, I was thinking about this king this last week. Billy Graham, who's now with the Lord, said that the great, next great awakening will take place in the workplace. That's what he said. He said, in my day and age, I saw God moving in stadiums full of people. He said, I see now God moving in one-on-one conversations in the workplace. That's what he said before he died. And, and, and I think, I believe the next wave of missions will be on the wings of business. You say, Craig, what do you mean? The countries that are in most need of a gospel presence are the countries in the most need of business development. Here's what's amazing, if you think about it. If you overlay a country or a a map of the world with the gospel's presence lacking, it is almost identical to the map where business development is lacking. Now, only God's smart enough to make that happen. In fact, I I have it, I think. Do you have those maps? I looked it up myself. So, So we've got poverty. Of course, huge in the 1040 window, poverty there across the equator. Now go to the business area of business development. Go to the next one. Isn't that pretty amazing? 
So, so what's, what's happening? If you're a business leader in here or have a heart for business, guess what? You have an incredible opportunity that no pastor will ever get in this life. What do we call this right here? We call it the 1040 window. Why? Because the parallel or the latitude is at 10 and 40. Why do we call it a window? Because you can't get into windows easily. But if you're a business leader, the 1040 window just became an open door. It's no longer a window for you. For business leaders, it's a door. To go in on the wings of business and say, you know what? We're going to bless these people. And that's what's happening right now, by the way. If you follow the North American Mission Board, it is amazing what's happening with businesses and the 1040 window. The gospel being spread. Why? Why is that the case? Maybe God made you so good at your skill so you could take it to places where he's not known. What if God made you good at that skill to open up a whole nation to the gospel? And give you an inheritance in an eternal kingdom. I was reading from the North American Mission Board. There's a sports marketing guy that lives in Charlotte. He had a great degree. He worked for a big firm. He was working his way. Tons of upward mobility. He wanted to do whatever he could. He, he joined a church. He found out his firm had a branch and a place in the Middle East where this church had a church planning team. So he goes to his boss and says, I want to go to there. And they said, that's not a smart move. You will not go upward in mobility by going to that location. He said, I don't care about going upward in mobility. I want to go to that location. So you know what he did? He moved to the Middle East. And watch this. It didn't call the church one dollar for the gospel to be planted because this man went and worked for another firm there and supported it. He said that wasn't enough. He comes back to America. He now knows the business practice in the 1040 window. He cuts and, and withdraws from that business, retires from that business, goes and starts his own. So now is he not only costing the church anything to allow that missions team to be there, but he's actually funding all of the missions by himself through his skill. That's what God wants. That's what God has in mind. You say, Craig, every Christian is going to be led to perform their business in unreached people group? No, I'm not saying that, but here's what I'm asking you to say. When I was in high school, I had this wrong view of how God calls people. I thought it would be a burning bush. I thought it would be like the Virgin Mary would appear in the form of my skinny caramel macchiato, you know, and speak to me and tell me where to go. That kind of stuff never happened. Why? Why did it never happen? Because the question is not, are you called? It's where and how are you called? So I want to give some freedom today. Stop asking God questions that he already answered. He said everything in your job is to be used to make disciples. He's already told you that. So you don't have to ask it anymore. You don't have to say, God, what is your calling? It's right there. It'll start tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock sharp. Some of you, 7 o'clock sharp. It's right there. How can my life be leveraged for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the great commission of God? We've said here before, but I want to say again, do what you do well for the glory of God and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. Just do what you do well and do it somewhere strategic. Why are the only factors behind where we choose to live and work have to be where we make the most money? Why does it have to be the only factor? Did you know that when we get to heaven, I bet the kingdom priorities for Jesus won't be, oh, yeah, you, you should have lived in that city because you made the most money and you were closest to family. That's probably not going to be kingdom priorities. That's hard, I know. I know it's hard, but that's the gospel. 
I'm going to do it somewhere strategic. I'm going to serve in the way that God wants me to serve. I'm going to do it well for His glory. You know, I was in student ministry for over a decade. Can I tell you, I cannot count on all my fingers and toes of teenagers who were faithfully pursuing God in the context of our student ministry. And mom and dad got a job opportunity in another city. And the more money was more important than their children being faithfully invested in a local church where they were growing. And they picked up their kids and moved to another city. And it ruined their kids and their life in Christ. I'm not saying that happens for everybody, but I'm saying why does money have to be the first factor? Don't go where you can make the biggest paycheck. Go where you can make the biggest impact. The biggest impact for the glory of God. The kingdom of God. The advancement of God. In whatever God puts your hands to do. Last scripture I'll share. Come on team. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. Look what it says. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. What does that mean? It means, listen, you do what you do well and you're going to stand before the kings of the earth who don't know the gospel. You do what you do well, and you're going to stand before people of influence. Now, a word of warning, and I close. Worship God, not your work. When Adam and Eve fell, our relationship to work changed. Instead of being something that we use work to, to glorify God and serve others, work became our primary source of identity and idolatry. So we define, watch this, our worth by the status of our job or maybe even by the fact that we don't have to work. I'm independently wealthy. And then we depend on the security of our job to take care of us in the future. Listen, there's this amazing passage, and I'd never seen it before. I, had, I read it in a book, and I went back and looked at it. In Genesis, God, God delineates two different lines, an ungodly line and a godly line. Watch this. Remember Cain killed Abel? They had to have another son, right? They have another son named Seth. Here's what happens. If you follow Cain, he was driven out by God into the wilderness. And his descendants, the Bible says in Genesis uh, chapter 4, they, they, were, they were instrumental in developing agriculture, music, metal. They were great workers. So much so that by Genesis 11, they're being defined by their jobs. And watch this. Who actually builds the Tower of Babel? Who builds it? It's the descendants of Cain in which they built this magnificent tower a great achievement and it was supposed to be hey look how good our God is but they turned it to look how good we are look how significant we are and in contrast to that the descendants of Cain the descendants of Seth which is the contrast the Bible says in Genesis 4 25 they were not defined by their work but they were those who began to call upon the name of the Lord what's he saying oh my gosh this is so powerful the point isn't that they didn't work just like the Canaanites were the point is that the worshipers of God are not defined by their job. They're defined by their altars. They're defined by calling upon the name of the Lord. Yes, they still did their work, but they didn't do their work to say, look at me, look at me. Look how awesome I am. See, for men, when work is our identity, success goes to our head and failure goes to our heart. But when the gospel is our identity, Success or failure doesn't move us because we know God is our security. Church work is a terrible God. God is a great God. And when your work becomes your identity, it becomes toilsome. So if you give your soul to Him, you can enjoy the rest of your work. Why? Because your life's not depending on your work. Your life's depending on God. In other words, let me say it this way and I close. When Jesus is your life, you can enjoy the rest of your life. Your work doesn't have to be toilsome. Why? Because your identity is not wrapped up in it.
Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.